And if you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 7. We're going to be in Luke uh, chapter 7, starting in verse 11 this morning. So, I want you to imagine yourself trekking around the Galilean countryside with Jesus. Jesus has invited you to follow him, to enroll as his disciple, to learn his way of life and the gospel that he's come to announce and to enact in the world. Every action that Jesus takes is intentional. Every day is part of the apprenticeship. Every moment is is revelatory, and it's an opportunity for us to experience Jesus. As we catch up with Jesus today, he has quite the audience, and He has his disciples and spectators alike doing the unexpected. He has thus taking a detour. Jesus is leading us off the beaten path and up the long steep hill to Nain. We read this in verse 11. Soon afterward, he, Jesus, went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. You see, the Galilean village of Nain, we have a little picture of it and a little map to kind of orient yourself. It's about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum, which is Jesus' kind of hub, his mission base. And it's at a slight remove from the international uh, highway. It's, It's off the beaten path, and it sits perched on the northern slope of a basalt ridge that rises about 1,690 feet into the air above sea level, above the Jezreel Valley. It's a prominent settlement, but it is out of the way. And do you think you could handle the the mileage and the elevation that Jesus proposes if you were there? Would you make this yomp on a balmy, hot Mediterranean day? I'm reminded I was a history major, and I'm a history nerd, And there's a story about the presidency of Theodore Roosevelt. And often what happened when a cabinet secretary or a judge or a a bureaucrat, some sort of an ambassador would come to a meeting in the Oval Office in the White House, they would often find themselves whisked right out the door to the trail. And uh, Teddy Roosevelt had this thing where he would do these walk-and-talk meetings with his advisors. So while these guys are in business attire, they'd find themselves dragged along on these intense hikes through the wilderness around Washington, D.C. And one uh, French ambassador famously complained in his memoir, what the president called a walk was a run. No stop, no breathing time, no slacking of speed, but a continuous race, careless of mud, thorns, and the rest. He recounts a time when they would encounter a creek or a river that the president would strip down and he'd hold his clothes over his head and swim across so that they could continue their conference on the other side, dry and unimpeded. And as you can imagine, people either hated or loved Theodore Roosevelt. And many responded to a summons to the White House with fear and trembling. And I wonder if there's a little bit of that subtext here. How many people following Jesus this day thought they were going to get the inspirational TED Talk on the lake shore while Jesus' words were carried to them on the cool breeze? 
Instead, they are exercising in the heat of the day for them to no apparent purpose. For you, if you were there, would you be experiencing growing frustration or growing expectation as Nain grew nearer and nearer to you? And as the crowd that is following Jesus finally crests the hill, they come face to face with another crowd that is marching in the opposite direction. We read this in verse 12, As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. You see, it's customary in Jewish culture for people to drop whatever they are doing when a funeral procession passes by and join in at the back of the throng to respectfully accompany the grieving family to the burial. So people who saw would join in the back and the procession was usually led by the grieving family. In this case, it's the mother of the deceased. And while no parent should ever have to bury their child, this is a particularly sad scene. Because for a widow's only son to die before she did, it was considered extremely tragic. It left her not only bereft, it left her exposed and vulnerable. Think she's probably now buried her father, her husband, and her son, the men who are responsible for caring for her and protecting her in a hostile world. What's more, she lives in a society that offers her next to no avenues to earn her own independent income. So she's already emotionally devastated and now poverty looms on the horizon. It's really only public charity or prostitution that are her options. And a crowd gathers not as a reflection of how big her social circle is that will journey with her through these next days, weeks, and years. It's more a testimony to the profundity, the profound nature of her loss. It's as if the village of Nain is conducting a double funeral. One for this young man who has passed, and another for the coming demise of his mother. A widow losing her only son was the, the example par excellence of catastrophe. Indeed, when the prophet Jeremiah is searching for a metaphor to help Israel understand the disaster that will fall, befall Jerusalem in his day, this is what he comes up with as an illustration. He says, O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son. Most bitter lamentation for suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. There's nothing worse in their minds than a widow losing her only son. And this is the scene that meets the crowd following Jesus as they get to Nain. And it's a question of what were they expecting? First, Jesus takes them on this detour, and now they're experiencing what they imagine is this delay, this heartbreaking delay. 
And I bet it sounds, it sounds callous, but I wonder if they're thinking, man, this is a buzzkill. We came out to hear and to see and to experience what he will do. And now all of these different things have happened. And I wonder if they're starting to regret tagging along with Jesus on the journey. And when the Lord saw her, this is verse 13, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. It's interesting, this is the first time Luke, as the narrator, calls Jesus Lord. When the Lord saw her, instead of politely falling in line in the funeral procession, he boldly approaches this mother in her despair and he tells her not to weep. On paper, that kind of sounds terrible to my ears. Women, woman, stop crying. Can't you see I'm someone special? I'm an A-lister. I'm, I'm a celebrity. I came with an audience. I've got all these groupies. And I made your humble town a stop on my messianic tour. And now we've gotten here and we have to deal with your wailing. It's cramping my vibe. Pipe down, move along, find your stiff upper lip. I haven't got all day for politeness and propriety. Woman, do not weep. But that's actually not Jesus at all. The sight of her evokes compassion. In fact, the disciples are starting to wonder if she is the reason for this detour after all. And he tells her to dry her tears, not because mourning the dead is inappropriate. Jesus himself will weep at the graveside of a friend. But he tells her to not weep because he has come with authority and compassion and divine power to turn her weeping into joy. And notice the contrast between this woman and last week's centurion, she sends Jesus no delegation. She makes no appeal for help. She displays no remarkable faith. She gives no hint that she's ever expecting to see her son again. She's just broken and hopeless. She's wandering about in a daze. But Jesus has taken the initiative and come to her. Verse 14, then he came up and touched the beer, and the bearers stood still. His action literally shocks the pallbearers into stillness. There's no closed coffins in the ancient world. They carried the bodies out on stretchers to the graveside because they had to bury them quickly in the heat and without any refrigeration. And by touching the stretcher upon which the the corpse was carried, Jesus would be taking on the most severe form of ritual uncleanness that they had in Judaism. It would cost him a week in quarantine. It would, he'd have to go through several tedious rituals of cleansing. Only those closest to the deceased were expected to expose themselves to this sort of impurity and inconvenience. But Jesus, ostensibly an outsider, steps into the intimacy of the widow's grief and does what is only expected of family. And he said, 
Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. We've seen Jesus heal with only a word, with only an intention. But here he makes it a point to cross that line of purity and propriety to physically touch that young man's corpse or, or at least his stretcher. Why? What is the, the revelation of this scene? Well, I think the first thing is this. Jesus becomes family with this woman. He intertwines Himself into her story, becoming what in this culture is the man that she needs. Someone who is safe and bound to her. Someone committed to her well-being. Someone who will advocate for her and provide for her and protect her and rescue her. He assumes the role of a husband, of a father, of a brother, of a son. He becomes family with her. That's why he marches to the head of the funeral procession. It's the place for family. That's why he touches her boy. He's taking responsibility and bearing the cost the family bears. He's becoming for her a kinsman redeemer. Yet they were strangers until Jesus made that long trek from Capernaum, from heaven to Nain. So number one, Jesus is becoming family with this woman. Number two, Jesus combines compassion with power. The purpose of this miraculous intervention is so that the boy might be given to his mother. He's not here to wow the crowd, to offer tangible evidence of who he is. It's a dramatic display of his heart and what he's come to do. He's come to bring good news to the poor and release to the captives. To declare the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus makes the long trek to Nain so that we might see compassion married to power for our benefit. Number three, I think this scene teaches us that the authority of Jesus' word extends even over life and death. What was that line that we just sang? Out of the roaring lion declares the promise that the grave has no claim on me. Jesus revokes death's claim over this man. Jesus rebukes the power of evil over this family. He rescinds and He supplants the dominion that the forces of death have over this family. And He brings hope and a life and a future when all of them were lacking. Do you need Jesus to do this for you and your family? 
Does it feel like the forces of death have dominion or oppressing or are crushing down upon you? Jesus runs up that hill so that he can do just that. To rebuke evil, sin, and death in our lives and make all things new. When he arrives, will you allow him to approach? Will you permit him to become family with you? Will you become family with him and his family? Really, more than anything in the world, I pray that you experience Jesus' compassion and His power in your life. It will change you forever. He becomes family with this woman. He combines compassion and power and He demonstrates that His Word is authoritative even over death, the forces of evil, sin, and death. And in the end, both crowds come together and they raise a chorus of praise. That atmosphere of just deep sorrow is transformed into immense joy because Jesus has shown up with compassion and power. And they rightly say, God has visited His people And it makes them shake and tremble. They are filled with fear. But this visitation from God, God showing up in our lives, is for compassion and not judgment. Glory be to God. So you have this great and incredible scene. And then where Luke goes next, I find stunning Someone who had trekked up that hill to Nain with Jesus races back to report to one of Jesus' earliest proponents and followers, John the Baptist. The man who had announced to Israel, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They come to him in prison. He's been rotting away in prison, arrested by the authorities. And they tell him of what has taken place. And instead of responding with joy, with ecstasy, John responds to this story with doubt and disillusion. The disciples of John, verse 18, reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Despite the beauty of what we hear coming out of Nain, this compassion and power of Jesus on display for a vulnerable widow, John asks, Shall we be looking for someone else? What do you imagine is causing John's misgivings? How has Jesus scandalized his expectations? We're not told. But I imagine, I wonder if he's struggling with Jesus' compassion. 
John had an edge on him. He had a passion for things to be made right, for justice to be done. He said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He wanted justice and renewal, and he wanted bold proclamation, and he sees Jesus expending all this effort to come alongside a widow in her distress, to move heaven and earth to raise her son, to give her a future and a hope. And I wonder if he's struggling with that priority. I wonder if he's struggling with Jesus' methods, the, the obscurity of what he's doing, the, the seemingly small-scale, piecemeal way that he's showing God's work in the world. Maybe he's thinking it's not systematic enough. It's, not, it's having too little impact on culture, on politics, on the, on the kingdom all around us. Maybe he's scandalized by Jesus' pace. It's a slow burn. It's inefficient. For John, it's going to be ineffective for changing his fate. He had taken on the powers that be in hopes that Jesus was right behind him. And his road is going to lead to his death, to sealing his witness with his life. And he's struggling. He's hearing these great reports and he's struggling with the Savior that has shown up. And we read this in verse 21. In that hour... Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This beatitude feels more like a challenge than a proclamation. Recognize what I am doing and what God is doing in your midst. And do not be derailed by the difference between what you expected the Savior to be and to do and whom I am in fact am. Blessed is the one who is not offended by Jesus, especially among his followers. If Jesus is doing what one hoped for from the Messiah, then one is blessed, one is fortunate because he will not disappoint. But if it is not what you hoped for, if you were banking on a Savior who was more of a political leader or a, a culture warrior or an advocate for your own prosperity, Jesus is blessed are all who are willing to undergo that conversion of your perspective. Blessed are those who are not offended by Jesus and who are able to see anew who He is and what His mission is. 
It's compassion mixed with power. It's good news for the poor. It's Him touching a leper and saying, I am willing, be clean. It is Him calling a fisherman and saying, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men and women alive. It's Him speaking to a paralytic, your sins are forgiven. The telling the powers that be, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Of Him proclaiming to the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. He says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, and this is what we're doing. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We see this beautiful scene in the Gospels of what Jesus did at Nain. But then we are left with questions. Does Jesus' compassion, his methods, his pace offend you? We've been journeying through Luke for 15 weeks. We have one more study before we take a break. In what ways, as we've examined Jesus himself in this gospel, has he defied or scandalized your expectations? In what ways, as we've seen him in the flesh, have you experienced his compassion and his power anew? What a beautiful Savior. And yet he says, blessed are those who are not offended by me. We're going to end our worship this morning meeting the Lord at the table. And it's interesting because it is at the table where Jesus becomes family with us. He prepares a table and He invites us to dine, to become family, to become part of His community, part of that community of love and belonging. The table is also a place where we experience His compassion combined with power. Not only did He give His very life to save us, but in giving his life, he took it up again. He proved victorious, not only so that we would be forgiven, but that we might be made alive and new once again. And it's also at this table that we recognize and acknowledge the authority of his word, even over the realm of death. For God so loved the world that He gave His only beloved Son, His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him would not perish, but experience everlasting life. And we come to the table 
to remember. We come to the table to proclaim. We come to the table to experience anew His compassion and His power, His love and His grace. To recognize that He did it all. He took the initiative to come to us to give us hope and a future and life everlasting. So as the worship team plays, I encourage you to come up and grab your elements. There's three tables. Gluten-free is at the center table. Grab it, hold it together, and then after the song, we will partake in this sacred meal together. Let me pray. Dear God, Lord, we thank you for your heart, for your power, for your initiative. God, we love you. So often we try to force you into the box of our expectations, but you break on through because you are far better than whoever we were waiting for, whatever we could have imagined. May we not be offended by you, by the way you move in our lives. Instead, may we Receive your approach. Welcome your healing touch and feast on these elements of your grace so dearly won for us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.